For quite a while now, there is a sense in which I have been dreading this time when we arrive at the passage that we are going to consider this morning. The reason I say that is because this morning we are going to look at Mark's account of the time when Jesus bore our sin, experienced the wrath of God in our place, and was abandoned by his Father. I have been dreading this time in the sense that I know there is absolutely no way whatsoever I can communicate the depth and profoundness of what took place in those three hours. So before we turn to our passage of consideration, would you please bow with me and ask the Spirit of God to enlighten our understanding of what we are going to consider this morning. Let's pray together. Father, this is where words fail us. This is where our minds fail us. Because being finite, finite, we are not able to grasp or comprehend what took place at that moment in human history. We acknowledge our inadequacy, and so we ask that your Spirit would enlighten our understanding that you would expand our comprehension and give us a greater insight and appreciation to what took place in those few hours on the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 15. If you are not already there, Mark chapter 15 and Please follow along as I read verses 33 through 41. Mark 15, verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, so the, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Then there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. It is my own inadequacy that has caused me to, in a sense, want to avoid addressing this passage because I am painfully aware of the fact that I am unable to do justice to what is described in these verses before us. It is here that Mark tells us about one of the most mysterious times in all of human history, if not the most 
mysterious time in all of human history. This is the record of the only time in all of eternity when there was a rupture in the perfect relationships of the members of the triune Godhead. Never before was there, and never since has there been, and never again will there be a separation of any kind between the Father and the Son. But that did take place on this one occasion. When Jesus took our sin and became sin for us, God the Father poured out his holy and righteous wrath on his Son, who was our substitute. Jesus was under the wrath of God, and as a result, he was alienated from God for the only time in all of eternity, past, present, or future. And it is impossible for us to understand this completely. The reason why I say that is because we cannot comprehend something that we don't know or have ever experienced or to which we cannot even relate. What I mean in this specific situation is that we have never known perfect, unbroken fellowship with the Father. Never. We can't relate to that. We were born as sinners and separated from God, alienated from God. Even now, our relationship with God is somewhat clouded, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. In other words, we have a relationship with the Lord now, but it is limited in comparison to what it will be someday when we are with the Lord face to face and we have glorified bodies. We have never known perfect, unbroken, unhindered fellowship with the Father. But beloved, that's all Jesus ever knew. He had only known perfect, unbroken, unhindered fellowship with the Father. Therefore, what he experienced on this day is not something to which we can relate. His suffering was so much more severe than what sinners will face in eternal hell because sinners will simply be given what they wanted in life. People don't want to love God. People don't want to live for God and surrender their lives to God. People don't want to do His will. As a result, they will be consigned to a place for all eternity that will be separated from God. Yes, it will be a horrific place of suffering. But there's a sense in which it won't compare to what Jesus went through on this occasion because sinners, all of us as sinners, are already under the wrath of God and are separated from Him. When Jesus experienced those things, it was much more of a shock to him, much more of a contrast, because he had never been under the wrath of God and separated from him relationally. That is why I say that it is impossible, utterly impossible, for us to fully comprehend what took place at this time in history. 
But by God's grace and with his enablement, we'll do our best to try to grasp it. Notice Mark's description beginning in verse 33. He says, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We know from verse 25 that Jesus was nailed to the cross at nine o'clock in the morning. So when Mark mentions the sixth hour, it is now noon. Mark is using the Jewish method of reckoning time, which began at six in the morning. So the sixth hour would be noon. Jesus has already been on the cross for three hours. But at noon, something eerie took place. Darkness covered all the land. And the way this verse reads, it remained that way until three o'clock in the afternoon. Three hours of pitch black darkness in the middle of a bright day. By the way, not that we would have to have them, but there are three independent accounts of this worldwide darkness spoken of here in Mark's Gospel. One, Dionysius was a Greek scientist in Egypt, and he reported that he saw this same darkness on this very year when he was down in Egypt. But Dionysius wasn't the only one. Another Greek scientist in Egypt by the name of Diogenes wrote this, I quote, There was a solar darkness of such like that either the deity himself suffered at that moment or sympathized with one that did. Diogenes was not a believer. He was a pagan man. But what he wrote was strikingly accurate. God the Son was suffering at that very moment, and God the Father sympathized with him. Then thirdly, from Turkey, we have another record of this event. Again, I quote, There was a great and remarkable eclipse of the sun above any that had happened before. At the sixth hour, the day was turned into darkness of night, so that the stars were seen in heaven, and there was a great earthquake at Bithynia, which overthrew many of the houses. End quote. This was no normal eclipse. Because it is my understanding that when there is a normal eclipse of the sun, you can't see the stars. But he specifically mentions seeing the stars in the midst of this great darkness. He also mentions an earthquake, which Matthew describes in his gospel account of the crucifixion. So pitch black darkness from noon until three. Why did this darkness happen? The next verse gives us the clue. Verse 34, And at the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can tell by looking in your Bible that this part of the verse right here at the end is either in quotation marks or it's italicized or both, indicating that it is a quote, which it is. It is a quote of Psalm 22.1. The entire psalm is a messianic psalm, and part of it emphasizes the intense suffering of the Messiah. 
Verses 6 through 8 of that psalm say this, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's what Jesus experienced from people, as we saw back in verses 29 to 32. But that wasn't nearly as agonizing as what Jesus experienced at this point of the crucifixion. From noon until three in the afternoon, Jesus was separated from his Father relationally. Again, I say, beloved, that there is absolutely no way we can appreciate or fathom how excruciating this was for both the Father and the Son. This was something never experienced by either of them. The Son was separated from the Father because the Son became our substitute to experience the righteous wrath of God against sin. Jesus was willing to take what we deserve, and the Father was willing for him to be the substitute. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why there was darkness over all the land. This was the time when Jesus died spiritually. This was the very thing he had prayed about in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed and asked the Father if this cup could pass from him. When Jesus prayed that, he wasn't praying to be released from physical death. He knew he had come to die. That was the whole purpose behind his incarnation. However, there is nothing in Hebrew Scripture that specifically states that the Messiah had to die spiritually. So Jesus was praying and asking the Father if it would be possible to accomplish the plan of redemption without having to drink the cup of God's wrath. The term cup is often used in Hebrew Scripture to symbolize the wrath of God, and that's what Jesus did not want to experience. He didn't want to die spiritually, but there was no other way. He did drink the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it fully. The question is sometimes asked, how is it that the death of Jesus on the cross over a period of several hours was able to pay for the sins of people who otherwise would have to spend an eternity in hell paying for their sins? How does that compute? There are at least a couple answers to that question. Number one, because Jesus was eternal, his death has eternal merit or eternal value. The eternal one was able to pay a price that would take a human being an eternity to pay because of the fact that Jesus was eternal. Secondly, the intensity of the suffering that Jesus endured and experienced in those hours was exceedingly beyond anything any sinner will experience in eternity because it was so unnatural and foreign to Jesus in light of his perfect holiness. 
Thus, the death of Jesus was more than sufficient to pay for the sins of those who otherwise would have to spend eternity in hell. He drank the full cup of God's wrath and was separated from his Father throughout that entire time. It is worth noting that this is the only time, please hear this, this is the only time in all the life and ministry of Jesus that he did not address God as his Father. This is it, right here. In the Gospel records, there are 170 times in which Jesus addressed God as Father and 21 times when he said, My Father. In the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, which was just before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus addressed God as Father six times. But not here. Instead, he said, My God, my God. During the time when Jesus was suffering under the wrath of God, he did not have a paternal relationship with God, but rather a judicial relationship with God. That is why Jesus said, My God, my God, instead of my Father, my Father. During this time, Jesus was relating to God as judge and not as Father. Verse 35 tells us, some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he is calling for Elijah. The reason why they thought that was because Jesus cried out in Hebrew, and in Hebrew the first word of Psalm 22 verse 1 is Eli which is the shortened form of Elijah. So some mistakenly thought he was calling Elijah. Verse 36, Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. We don't know if the offering of this sour wine was an act of mercy, or if it was merely intending to prolong his suffering But the last statement of this verse is clearly further mockery. You see, the Jews believed, and still do to this day, that Elijah would be the forerunner of the Messiah. So this was their way of saying, let the forerunner come and save this so-called Messiah. And verse 37 tells us, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. We know from Luke's gospel that when Jesus cried out with a loud voice, as Mark says here, he said something. This is what he said. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. By the way, did you notice the change? He said, Father. He could say, Father, at this point, because just prior to this, he had said, It is finished. In English, that almost sounds like a statement of resignation, but it really wasn't that. In Greek, it is one word, and it means paid in full. So when Jesus said paid in full, that was a statement of exclamation because he had drunk the cup of God's wrath completely. 
Then he breathed his last. And Matthew states it this way. He yielded up his spirit. Listen to that wording. He yielded up his spirit. He himself did that. In John 10, 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. There's a sense in which, and please understand this, there's a sense in which the crucifixion did not kill Jesus. Because twice we are told he still had the strength to cry out with a loud voice. Jesus did not fade away. His life did not sort of ooze from him slowly. But rather, he died at the very moment he chose to die. Literally, it is described this way in the Greek text, he dismissed his spirit from his body. John 19.30 tells us, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Don't read that too quickly. You'll miss it. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Normally, a man dies first, and then his head falls. The exact opposite took place when Jesus died. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit, which illustrates the fact that no one took his life from him. He gave it up himself. He died at the very moment he chose to die. Verse 38 tells us, Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If you combine this with what Matthew tells us, we see that there were actually three signs that accompanied the death of Jesus. Number one, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Number two, there was a great earthquake. Number three, there was a partial resurrection, which may have been a temporary one, as in the case of Lazarus, or a permanent one. Let me comment on each one of these signs individually. First of all, as Mark tells us here, the thick veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Jewish literature of this period doesn't mention that this happened in the temple, which should not surprise us. Very few people ever saw this thick curtain because it was the curtain that blocked the entrance between the holy place into the Holy of Holies. Only a few select priests went into the holy place, and only the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, and he only did so one time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Therefore, only a few people would have seen this, and it is very likely that the Jewish leadership wanted to keep this event quiet. It is interesting to note, however, that there are many, many legends among the Jewish people from this time period that record the fact that something significant happened on this very year in conjunction with the temple. Out of the many legends regarding the temple that come from this very year, there are four worth mentioning. Number one, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, and his accuracy has been confirmed 
to be quite amazing. Almost in everything he describes, every now and then, there's some small detail he doesn't have right. But a very accurate Jewish historian, he mentions that there was a sudden, mysterious extinction of the middle light of the seven lights of the lampstand in the holy place, and they never knew why it went out. Josephus points out that some of the leaders took that as an omen of the temple's coming destruction. Secondly, Josephus and the Talmud both record the fact that the heavy temple doors, which always took several men to open, suddenly opened of their own accord mysteriously. One of the chief rabbis from that time took that as an omen of the temple's coming destruction. Thirdly, another Jewish writing records how the lintel or the header of the temple split and fell on this same year. But the fourth legend is the most interesting one of all. It is called the legend of Azazel, which is the Hebrew word for scapegoat. In Leviticus chapter 16, we are given the full record of what what must be done on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. Two goats were brought to the high priest who would kill one and take its blood into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle it on the mercy seat. He would then come out and lay his hands on the head of the second goat and confess the sins of the people of Israel. That goat then would be chased out into the wilderness, which depicted the fact that after the shedding of blood, the sins of Israel would be carried away. It became a custom of the Jews to tie a red ribbon around the live goat before it was sent out into the wilderness based on the statement in Isaiah about their sins being turned from scarlet to white as snow. Jewish stories claimed that as this goat was sent out year after year, the red ribbon would turn white to picture the fact that God had forgiven the sins of Israel for that year. However, the rabbis say in the Talmud that beginning this very year, the ribbon stopped turning white, which meant God was no longer forgiving the sins of Israel by means of these two goats. It is astonishing that they say that in the Talmud, but they are not willing to say that the reason why God was not forgiving Israel's sins in that manner any longer was because of the death of Jesus the Messiah. Now, None of those four legends are recorded in Scripture, so we can't be sure if they happened or not. But we do know that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. It could not have been ripped by a man, and it certainly could not have been ripped from top to bottom. It is obvious that this was an act of God, and it was intended to symbolize two things. Number one, All true believers may enter into God's presence, not just the high priest. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, Therefore, brothers, now listen to these words closely, and try to think like a Jewish person. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, stop right there. If you're Jewish and you're reading those words, you say, absurd, unthinkable. 
You don't go into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest. And he could only do it one day a year. And the stories were that a, a rope was tied around his ankle or around his waist so that if he died in there, they could pull him out without having to go in and retrieve him. You don't go into the Holy of Holies. But Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. The curtain was ripped from the top to the bottom, by God to let us know that we can draw near to him with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Secondly, this tearing of the veil symbolizes the fact that God is no longer going to manifest his presence within a building, but rather he left that place to go out to dwell in his people. God doesn't dwell in the Holy of Holies anymore. In fact, there is no temple in Jerusalem today in which God could dwell. He doesn't dwell in a building. He dwells in his people. So when the veil was torn, that act of God was not only saying that we can go in, it was also saying God went out. That is what Mark mentions as a sign in connection with the death of Jesus. Matthew adds another sign by telling us that there was an earthquake that resulted in the rocks around Jerusalem being split. Now, those of you who have been to Jerusalem know there are a lot of rocks in and around Jerusalem. Not only rocks like little rocks you can pick up, but a lot of rock structures, big rocks buried under thin layers of soil. And the rocks, a lot of the rocks were used in that day, as tombs. So the rocks were split. As I mentioned earlier, we have an extra-biblical record that says this earthquake was felt as far away as Turkey. It may have been a worldwide earthquake, but we don't have any record of it beyond what is modern-day Turkey. Even so, if you are familiar with the geography of the Middle East, then you know that an earthquake that is felt both in Jerusalem and in Turkey is a massive earthquake. No wonder it split rocks. This was no mere localized tremor. This was a massive earthquake. That was a second sign that Matthew records in his account of the crucifixion. And then there was a third sign. Mark doesn't mention it. Matthew does. Here's the third sign. Matthew 27, 52 says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. We don't know a lot about this resurrection because Matthew is the only gospel writer to say anything about it. We don't know if this was a permanent resurrection so that those who were raised were given glorified bodies or if it was a temporary resurrection like what Lazarus evidently experienced. I lean toward the view that it was a permanent resurrection, which would mean that these select believers were raised with glorified bodies, and after they appeared to people in Jerusalem, they were caught up into heaven. Now, we can't say for sure, since the only information we have to go on is Matthew's brief statement in Matthew 27. 
In the very next verse, he says this, Matthew 27, 53, he says, And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The wording of that brief account is difficult to unscramble in both Greek and English. There are basically two options, two interpretations. One view is that these select believers were raised when Jesus died, and then they went into Jerusalem to appear to people after Jesus had been raised, which is the way it is worded in the NIV, the New International Version. The other option is that the graves were split open when Jesus died to show that he had conquered death, but the resurrection of these saints didn't take place until Jesus was also raised. That's the way it's worded in the New King James Version and the NASB. Either way, two things are certain. Number one, there were some saints raised from the dead at some time around the death and resurrection of Jesus. And secondly, these believers went into Jerusalem and appeared to many. That's what happened. Why did it happen? It happened to illustrate two very important realities. One, Jesus conquered death by his death. And two, his resurrection is a guarantee that all of us who know him will someday be raised also. Those are the critical points that the Holy Spirit wants us to understand from those unique events. Jesus conquered death by his death. And his resurrection is a guarantee that all of us who know him will someday be raised also. So God put his exclamation point on the death of his son in three ways. At the end of the three hours of eerie darkness, the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. There was a massive earthquake. And the graves around Jerusalem were busted open. No wonder the centurion said what he did. Verse 39, So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. The eerie darkness followed by the massive earthquake got this man's attention. In addition, he noticed the way Jesus died. That's what the verse is, is, is implying. When he saw the way he cried out and he saw the way he died, it, it spoke to him. It said something. He noticed the difference between the way Jesus behaved throughout the crucifixion in comparison to how other victims of crucifixion reacted or responded. When Jesus reviled, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten. In the midst of his horrific suffering, he thought about others. For example, in Luke 23, 34, he prayed for the soldiers who were carrying out the crucifixion. In John 19, 26, he arranged for the care of his mother. In Luke 23, 43, he granted salvation to the repentant thief on the cross next to him. All of these events had an impact on the centurion, but not only him, because according to Matthew's gospel, it also impacted some of the other soldiers who were there. 
Matthew tells us that great fear fell upon them as they realized this was the Son of God. I don't think we have sufficient words to describe their fear. If this is referring to the same soldiers mentioned back in verse 24, then they had previously been gambling for the clothing of Jesus. They didn't care about this man. They just wanted his clothes. But a few hours later, they realized that this man was no mere man. They realized he is the Son of God. And several of them uttered this confession, though Mark only mentions one in particular, the centurion, because of his leading role. Now it's possible that this confession was a confession of true repentance and genuine faith. If so, these would have been the next trophies of our Lord's grace shortly after the salvation of the thief on the cross. You will remember that near the beginning of the crucifixion, Jesus had prayed for some of the soldiers who were carrying out their orders from Pilate. Luke 23, 34 says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I mean, think about it. These soldiers had probably carried out many crucifixions, and they didn't know who this was they were crucifying. They had no idea who this was. Just another man condemned by Rome to be crucified. So Jesus prayed for them. Their response here, if it was a response of genuine repentance and faith leading to salvation, was an answer to his prayer. And then Mark closes out this scene with verses 40 and 41. He says, There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Mark says they were looking on from afar. Why? Because they couldn't entertain the thought of seeing him up close. They couldn't bear to look at his suffering up close, but neither could they entertain the thought of leaving him. This is a, this is a very touching scene. These women truly loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Three of them are specifically mentioned in verse 40. And the first is Mary Magdalene. Jesus had delivered Mary Magdalene from seven demons, and she was eternally grateful. The second Mary in the verse was the mother of the apostle known as James the Less, and he was called that to distinguish him from James, the brother of John. And then the third woman listed here was Salome, the mother of James and John. These three dear women, as well as those mentioned in verse 41, nameless women, stayed with Jesus to the bitter end, even though they watched from a distance. How can we capture this whole scene in words? We can't. We can't. 
All we can do is marvel in wonderment and appreciation. Let's bow together as we close this morning. As you bow your head in closing this morning, give thought to what you have seen in the Word of God this morning. Give thought and consideration to Jesus, our sin bearer, the one who died in our place and drank the cup of God's wrath so that we never have to drink the cup of God's wrath. And think about these women who were there to the very end, who could not bear to be up close, but who could not entertain the thought of leaving either. It's impossible to totally grasp and put our arms around this scene, but ask the Spirit of God to minister it to our hearts. And Father, as we close our time together this morning, we realize that the crucifixion of Jesus is a story that many of us have read oftentimes. From Matthew's Gospel, Mark's, Luke's, John's, We've read it many times, and through the years we've heard it at Good Friday, at Easter, and other times of the year, and so we are familiar with it. And yet, in our familiarity, we acknowledge and confess that we cannot fathom it. We cannot fully comprehend it. As we prayed at the beginning, enlarge our minds, expand our thinking, increase our appreciation and insight. And Father, in closing, we pray for anyone here among us who has yet to embrace the, the, the payment that Jesus made on the cross. May your Spirit bring conviction to that man or woman, young person, whoever it is. May his or her heart be melted and softened by the picture of your Son bearing our sin in whose name we pray. Amen.